Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Catherine Grace Katz, the author of The Daughters of Yalta, The Churchills, Roosevelt's, and Harriman's, A Story of Love and War. This is her first book. She's a law student at Harvard, holds multiple degrees in history, and is an expert in the birth of counterintelligence. Thanks so much for being here, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Okay, the book, it's beautifully written. It focuses on the Yalta Conference, which some have called the most important meeting of all time, or at least World War II. Um, FDR, Churchill, Stalin, they meet in Crimea to discuss how Germany and Europe would be reorganized once the war was over. Now they meet from February 4th to February 11th of 1945, just two months before FDR dies, three months before the Germans surrender, and about six months before the Japanese surrender. Uh, and this book is great because it puts new characters at center stage. We've read about FDR and Winston Churchill and Aver Aver uh, Avril Harriman and of course Stalin. But today we're going to talk about their daughters and their relationships with them. And certainly we don't spend enough time talking about the women of history. So today we're going to do that. Um, what many don't realize, or at least won't until they read this book, is that those three men each bring their daughters on the trip. I didn't know that until I read this. Uh, they're all extraordinary women. FDR brings Anna. Churchill brings Sarah. Aver Avril Harriman brings Kathleen. So first of all, Catherine, okay. Uh, why does each world leader decide they need that kind of company on a trip to what was called the greatest meeting in history? Um, at a meeting like this, there is uh, deception and deceit and negotiations swirling all around. And at the core, you need to have someone at your side that you can trust implicitly in these kinds of situations. And not only someone that you can trust, but who has the, the skills and the expertise and the intelligence and uh, demeanor to be able to function in this sort of environment. And for each of these men, uh, their daughters were the answer to, to that need for different reasons for each of them. Uh, for Winston Churchill, his daughter Sarah was uh, an actress, so she had a natural uh, gift for uh, performing well in diplomatic situations. Uh, and she also had served in the women's branch of the Royal Air Force, and so she was very familiar with the allied operations of the war, uh, the technical aspects of the war. And she uh, had a very clear understanding of his mind and the way that his mind worked. And so for Winston, it was about having someone who understood his position, who understood what he was trying to achieve, and could help him process those thoughts and channel them in the most productive way. For Avril Harriman, his daughter Kathleen was extremely useful because she spoke Russian. She had been a war reporter at his side uh, in London when he was in London early in the war as the Lend-Lease envoy. And then when he becomes ambassador in 1943, she goes with him, learns Russian for both of them and becomes his assistant ambassador in a sense. And so she's able to be a liaison between the Soviets and the Americans as they're arranging for this conference and acts almost like a, uh, what we would think of as a protocol officer at the State Department today. And also this person that he can speak to in confidence when he is frustrated with the developments uh, and at times powerless to do anything about it. And finally, Roosevelt turns to his daughter, Anna, uh, literally because she is keeping him alive. He is dying of congestive heart failure at this time. As you mentioned, he dies eight weeks later. 
And other than the doctor, Anna is the only one who knows how sick he is. Even FDR doesn't really know what's wrong with him, but he senses something has changed. And so he brings his daughter, Anna, to be uh, a protector and a gatekeeper of sorts. Would you say that it was a foregone conclusion that any time these leaders would take a trip like this or go to something big or um, you know, be involved in a major decision that would change the fate of the war, that they would lean on their daughters in this way? Or was this something that once the trip and once the opportunity presented itself, they kind of identified, this is who I'm going to need with me? I think it's a little bit different for each of them. Anna Roosevelt had been hoping to join her father on one of these overseas uh, trips throughout his time as president, especially during the war. But previously, he had turned to his sons uh, because not only were you know, they a trusted audience, but they could also help him physically, uh, helping him stand and move from his chair because he was paralyzed, of course. Um, and so he had, you think of FDR as being a, a very progressive thinker. Um, certainly, he and Eleanor are you know, among the leaders of embracing you know women and bringing them into the professional and political fold but when it came to his family he was not as progressive especially with his own daughter and so this is a big change and a departure for him on how he has acted previously um i think for the churchill family it was um something that they had all decided together earlier in the war that when winston traveled abroad someone from the family should go with him his wife Clementine did go uh, to some of these meetings, notably when they went to North America, to Canada, the United States. Um, they traveled there and uh, their younger daughter Mary also came along, but Clementine was terrified of flying and so she tried to avoid it as much as possible. The other children, uh, the oldest child, Diana, was not really interested in politics. Um, their son Randolph, he was in the military, but he was uh, somewhat of a loose cannon. He drank too much, not the most um, tactful person in these kinds of situations. And then the youngest daughter, Mary, who would later go to the Potsdam Conference with Churchill, um, but she was a, a little young, less experienced. So Sarah is kind of the perfect person to be at his side and also to serve as a sort of unofficial family historian because they know that Winston will write his wartime memoirs later and they want to have some uh, memory of what's going on behind the scenes, not just the official conference records. And so, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no. So I was just going to ask, so, so um, describe the women also. They're, they're in similar places in their lives and careers. These are, they're, you know, they're not bringing uh, eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds. I mean, we hear the word daughter and you might assume that they're younger, but these are accomplished women, accomplished people. They've been, um, they've developed their careers a little bit. They have a bit of a public profile themselves. Yes. So Kathleen Harriman is the youngest. She's 27 and she was a college graduate and uh, had spent some time working with her father at their ski resort, Sun Valley, prior to the war. She was an Olympic level skier and she and her father had this shared love of uh, sport and adventure. And so she had kind of been in the mix with him uh, in his professional life for years. And he really uh, was very ahead of his time in wanting to bring his daughters into his professional world as much as possible. And then when the war breaks out, she goes to London as a war reporter. So she is very experienced. And everybody across the, the three delegations, they already know her and have experience with her. Sarah Churchill is 30. Uh, she had been an actress before the war. And then, as I mentioned, she joined the women's branch of the RAF. And uh, she is very capable, has a astute grasp of politics, and is a beautiful writer as well. 
And then Anna Roosevelt at 38, she's uh, a mother. The other two are, are not mothers, um, but Anna is uh, a mother of three. And she and her second husband, John Bodiger, were the editors of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, one of Hearst's newspapers before her husband, John, joined the army. And after he joins the army in 1943, she goes to live in the White House and takes a very active role in the day-to-day workings of uh, the Oval Office. What are the goals um, that the three women have in going? Are they, um, do they see themselves as advocates for their country? And in other words, being um, part of the um, the sort of deliberative team that are going to get the best results for America, for Britain, um, what have you? Or do they see themselves purely as aide-de-camp, as as people who are going to be there to make sure their fathers have the information and the decision-making sort of data in order to um, sort of protect them during this conference? I think one, in a sense, begets the other. I think it, the role of aides de camp is to try to help the principal act in the, the most efficient and productive way. And then when you can do that, then they perform best in these high stakes negotiations in the conference room. They didn't have the security clearance to be sitting at the table, uh, nor, nor the experience with these kinds of negotiations to have a seat you know, in hammering out the details themselves. But they are behind the scenes having these Um, confidential conversations with their fathers about what's going on at the conference, about fears and trepidations that they have. And really, when you think about it, the things that uh, a principal says in the course of a negotiation is often the the work of many people, many months of deliberation and consideration. And so a, a whole team is really kind of part of the negotiation through the principal, and they are they're part of this team, um, supporting their fathers, of course, but also um, each of them, they, they it's easy to think that you know they'd be kind of three daughters, you know, close friends, all kind of have the same position, but really their relationship ebbs and flows with that of their fathers because their mm-hmm. primary allegiance is to their father and to their country. What does it say about willingness to negotiate? Um, you know, I've been covering politics for years, um, and one of the things that I remember um, uh, studying and, and covering maybe back in 2010 or so um, when there was, you know, talk of, of um, maybe one day Hillary, uh, you know, wants to run as president herself, or for president herself one day, and she was Secretary of State. And there was all this talk about women, you know, on the world stage. Um, and one of the things that that I remember kind of hearing from these researchers is that women have uh, women are better at negotiating <laughs> than men are. To put it blunt, to put it nicely, um, women are better at negotiating. Um, and so I guess my question is that as that relates to, to these three world leaders at this particular time in history is what does it say about their willingness to negotiate if everyone sort of publicly brings a daughter with them? I don't want to make too much of this, but um, is it, you know, it's often said that if women were in charge through history, there'd be more compromise and less war. So is this a signal that they are sending to one another that, um, they are bringing their daughters with them as a sign that they may be willing more to negotiate? Or is this a subconscious piece of warfare? Or um, am I making too much of that? I think that the signal that they're sending with their daughters is that they're choosing to bring their daughters instead of, uh, for example, their wives. And not that their wives couldn't also be very useful and helpful and constructive in these environments. And Eleanor Roosevelt, certainly very experienced. Clementine Churchill, very experienced. April Harriman's wife had died and his second wife, you know, really was not involved in this um, sort of uh, world. 
But I think that had their wives come, there would have been an obligation for there to have been more pomp and circumstance and pageantry as custom would dictate. And so by bringing their daughters, they're signaling that they intend this to be a, a real working conference. And again, not any statement on their wives' abilities, but more just what would have been expected from a protocol perspective. There would have been you know, more formal dinners. There would have been more, you know, sightseeing around the area and meeting local people, which could have been very helpful. And the daughters get, did get to do this, but in a slightly more under the radar way. And with their daughters, they also are, the daughters are able to act in a quasi-official capacity where they are serving as uh, not exactly speaking on behalf of their government, but speaking with the, the weight of their fathers behind them. So they're able to go places and have subtle nuanced conversations and deliver you know, carefully worded messages that their fathers want to convey and also collect information from these more subtle nuanced conversations and report back in a way that is less official and less obvious um, than the principals would be themselves or you know, the secretary of state or, foreign, uh, or, or someone from the foreign office in Britain. And so it is this kind of intermediary role that's less defined, but because of who they are, there's a lot more flexibility and the flexibility is where there's a lot of value for their fathers. Let's set up the conference as well. Um, and I don't want to have you boil down this complicated piece of world history in, in, into 30 seconds here, but um, what are each country's goals of this conference? Um, and where is the war as they meet? Now, again, I realize this is like a gigantic question, but, but as briefly as you can, just explain where this is all at right now as these parties begin to meet. Sure. So uh, in the war, we're in February 1945, and the, the war in Europe is not over, but the end is finally in sight, and the race is on to see who will be the first to liberate Berlin. The war in the Pacific has a ways to go. The Battle of the Bulge has just ended. Iwo Jima has not yet occurred. The atomic bomb has not yet been tested. And so these are the, this is kind of the, the state of the world that we're in at this time. The, I'd say the four main conference objectives, uh, one, uh, what to do about Germany in the post-war world. And this is something that is of equal importance to all three of the allies. Should they uh, be allowed to remain one nation or should they be broken up into smaller states so that they can't rise up as a belligerent once again? The second issue was a matter of Poland and Polish sovereignty. And this was something that was really important to both Churchill and Stalin. The Brits uh, went to war in 1939 in defense of Polish sovereignty, and the Polish government has been in exile in London since the beginning of the war. And so Winston Churchill does not want to return home to London without having secured the objectives that they went to defend at the outset. Stalin, on the other hand, wants to make sure that he has friendly border, the friendly neighbors on his borders. The Soviet Union has been invaded through Poland multiple times, dating back to uh, Napoleon. They are determined that at the end of the war, they will have a government in Poland that's going to be sympathetic to the interests in Moscow. And they can back this up because they have the Red Army boots on the ground across Eastern Europe firmly in control of Poland. And so this is something that's going to be a, a huge point of contention between the Brits and the Soviets. In the Pacific, Franklin Roosevelt is very interested in bringing the Soviet Union into the war. The Soviets and Japanese have had a pact of neutrality since the beginning of the war. And as I mentioned, we don't know yet if the atomic bomb is going to work at this time. And so Roosevelt's looking at a potential uh, invasion of the home islands that could lead to the deaths of 200,000 American soldiers. He wants to save as many American lives as possible. And so he's willing to trade territorial concessions to the Soviets to bring them in. And finally, Roosevelt is also determined to establish the United Nations. 
not only because he wants to secure this for his own legacy and, and succeed where Woodrow Wilson failed at the end of World War I, but also he sees the United Nations as a way of bringing the Soviet Union into the international community in the post-war world after their common enemy has been vanquished. Let's also describe um, a little bit of the setting of this conference. And one of my favorite parts of this whole book is, is the way you describe the, the castle uh, and the, the, the actual physical meeting spaces. Um, and I wanna take a moment to read a bit here so you can all hear how wonderful and lovely this writing is. Um, so after um, uh, Catherine says it had once been the summer home, this, this, this palace had once been the summer home of Nicholas II and Alexandra, uh, she says, Palms and cypress trees filled the lush gardens surrounding the neo-Renaissance Italianate palace constructed from white Crimean stone. The Tsar and his children bathed in the sea, played tennis and rode horses over rocky trails, while the Tsarina sold her needlework at the bazaar to raise funds for, local, for the local hospital. But amid the relative simplicity, there remained splendor. So first, describe Lavadia Palace, is it still nice? Is it still as lush as you're describing it when 1945 rolls around? And that's, I guess, maybe a trick question. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Not for you, but yeah. Um, so Lavati Palace is, I, I feel like it's almost a character in its own right in the story, as is the, the surrounding area of Yalta. You have this very lush, beautiful, glamorous location, which is very much like the Mediterranean, which had long been a favorite place of the Tsar and also his... Uh, his uh, fellow Russian nobles, it's kind of called the Romanov route, this stretch along the shore of the Black Sea. But after the Russian Revolution, the Soviets nationalized all these homes, including Lavadia Palace, and they turned it into a, a rest home and sanitarium for Russian workers. And so the splendor is significantly uh, <laughs> reduced by then, as you can imagine. And then when the war breaks out and the Nazis invade the Crimea, they use Lavadia Palace as their Crimean headquarters. When the Soviets pushed them out shortly before the Yalta conference, the Nazis stripped the palace of absolutely everything of value, whether it's furniture, art, lamps, rugs, china, even down to the doorknobs. They so can you know, take the metal back uh, with them. And so the Soviets have three weeks once they uh, all decide where this conference is going to be held. And I, I want to say something about that in a moment. Um, but they have to literally restock this palace to make it habitable. They I mean, it's a dump. It's a dump, yes. There's nothing <laughs> Palace is a strong term. Yeah. <laughs> a shell of former glories. They have to take the contents of uh, luxurious hotels in Moscow, like the Hotel Metropole, which some of your listeners might recall from having read um, Amor Toll's A Gentleman in Moscow, these beautiful hotels, and literally put everything in the hotel on trains and cart it a thousand miles south and restock it. And then they also have to do things like they don't have ashtrays, they don't have coat hangers, they have to go into the local community and just requisition them out of local people's homes. And these people have nothing, their lives have been devastated by the war, and so they're just taking from the little that these people have. And so constructing kind of this, this false glamorous image and the juxtaposition of kind of the, um, the pasted together um, beauty combined with just the absolute devastation just outside the, the, the palace grounds, where if you look too closely kind of behind a, a painting on the wall, you can see just the, the splendor and the devastation in stark contrast. But the fact that they're meeting at Yalta is also really fascinating. Um, I don't think people realize what it took to get there and just how dangerous it was. At this point in the war, the balance of power has really shifted in Stalin's direction, and he knows that some of the objectives that Roosevelt and Churchill want to secure 
are going to be based on Stalin's willingness to be cooperative. And so he said he's afraid of leaving the Soviet Union because he doesn't want to leave his security apparatus. He says it's because of its health, because, and that's kind of ironic because FDR is really the one who's dying. And so he insists that if they want to meet in person, they have to come to him. For Roosevelt, this entails a uh, voyage by sea, which takes more than a week, across the Atlantic Ocean where they're still spotting uh, enemy U-boats. Churchill has to fly from London, and they meet first at Malta for kind of a, a pre-conference. But on the way, one of Churchill's planes uh, carrying members of the Foreign Office goes down off the coast of Italy. And then they have to fly a further 1,400 miles over enemy-occupied territory where there are anti-aircraft guns. They're flying at low altitude in unpressurized planes. And then they have to drive a further six hours once they land in the Crimea over just absolutely battle-scarred roads. It's horrible. And so the fact that they were willing to undergo this journey is really remarkable. And you would never ever see any government commit their principle to that kind of a situation for one of these summits today. It just would not be safe enough. And as an expert in counterintelligence, uh, you certainly would know that uh, you always want people on your home turf. Always come to my office, never go to someone else's office, right? Um, uh, 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 there's the, you mentioned him. There's a fourth person at play here, which is Stalin. So first of all, I didn't know that he was short until I read your book. I had no idea about that. Um, but why didn't he bring a daughter? Yes. Uh, yes. Stalin was very short. He is not the imposing, intimidating kind of figure that you would imagine. When his f picture was taken, they always shot it from uh, from below. So he looked larger than life. But in reality, he had a uh, really terrible skin, kind of a pockmarked face. One arm was shriveled and shorter than the other because of a childhood accident. He has you know, these horrible yellow teeth obscured by this you know, really awful mustache. And so he's, he's nothing to look at by any means and definitely not the imposing figure. And it's, it's kind of funny. Churchill is not terribly tall. Um, his daughter's about as tall as he is, Stalin, even shorter than that. Um, so it's just kind and of FDR funny. FDR is in a chair. I mean, let's exactly. be honest. You know, FDR right? was very tall. He was you know, six feet tall. But you know, once he is paralyzed, it completely changes things. So it's kind of interesting to think about that as well. Stalin did have a daughter. Her name is Svetlana, and at this time she's 19. Um, they did not have a very good relationship. Uh, I think it goes without saying, once uh, Svetlana learned as a teenager that her mother had committed suicide, kind of driven to it by Stalin. And so they had this contentious relationship already, and then Svetlana, as a teenager, falls in love with a uh, a filmmaker who's a good bit older than she is, and he's Jewish and married. And so then Stalin takes offense to this, of course, and sends him off to the to Siberia. Um, uh, then Svetlana goes and makes a rebellious marriage to one of her classmates, who's also Jewish, and Stalin refuses to meet his son-in-law. At this time, Svetlana is pregnant with her first child. And it's unfortunate that you know this is the situation between them because she did speak English and could have been very useful to him, much like the other daughters were to their fathers. But he really didn't allow her to interact with foreigners. Winston Churchill did meet her one time uh, during a meeting with Stalin in Moscow. And it was almost as if Stalin was bringing his daughter out just to, to make a brief appearance to say, see, look, I'm a family man too, to kind of make this emotional appeal to Churchill, and it's just very odd. Um, so Svetlana is there in spirit, in a sense. She had at one point sent a brooch as a gift to Sarah Churchill, um, kind of daughter-to-daughter -daughter diplomacy in a way, and Sarah wears this brooch during the conference, but Svetlana is decidedly not there. Does this show that he, does this, is this a sign of insecurity on Stalin's part? 
I think, I think Stalin, I mean, there's so much you can say about Stalin's insecurity. I mean, number one, that he doesn't want to leave the Soviet Union because he's afraid yeah. to leave his security team. Um, and I, I think, you know, he's someone who has to be in control of every, every small detail. There was a, a conception that the Western leaders had at the time. They kind of have this split personality view of Stalin, where on the one hand, Churchill saying things like, if I could only dine with Stalin once a week, we would have no problem. But I don't think he really believes that. He's kind of doing some external signaling for the sake of you know, furthering this alliance, this you know, uncomfortable alliance with the Soviets. And then there's also the sense that Stalin himself may be okay, but the people around him are the ones that we really have to worry about. And when Stalin goes back on his word, it's because of this, uh, this negative influence from his advisors. And so they're not sure really if it's coming from Stalin himself or the people around him. And it's very uh, destabilizing. Uh, maybe I waited too long to make this joke uh, because we're already on to something else. But if if you in the age of social media, um, we know that if you're willing to take a picture from lower than your eye line, then you know that you're not too happy with the way the rest of the rest of you looks. <laughs> who looks good? For, who looks better from lower down? But I guess Stalin did. Um, uh, uh, so how does the U.S. relationship with Stalin evolve? Um, is this a relationship of principle or convenience or both? So there's an element of realpolitik to it that FDR is looking at his allied partners and he and Churchill have had this really close relationship throughout the war. You know, they like each other personally. They have been you know, natural allies. But the Soviet Union is significantly more powerful at this point. And Roosevelt recognizes in the post-war world they will continue to be a force to be reckoned with. And it's better to be uh, on their good side than on their bad side. And so he wants to forge this uh, more personal connection with Stalin in hopes of making a breakthrough in allied relations. He thinks that you know, Stalin likes him personally. And I, I do think Stalin liked him and admired him and respected the, uh, the respect he commanded at home, you know, even though he was paralyzed, that he had you know, just this great admiration from the American public. But the difficulty in you know, working with the Soviets is that even if Stalin personally likes FDR, it's not going to change how he acts in pursuing his national interest. And there's this great moment where the American Secretary of State, Edward Stettinius, writes to George Kennan, who would go on to be a, a wise man of the Cold War, but at this time is working for Avril Harriman at the embassy in Moscow. And Ed Stettinius asks, Kennan, is there inf any information that you can give us about the backgrounds and biographies of the Soviet delegates that we will meet at this conference? And Kennan writes back and says, uh, I'm sorry, no, I can't really give you anything because any information we have about them is probably fake. The only real information we're going to get is going to be in obituaries after they're dead when they're of no use to anyone. And the idea that you could have this breakthrough and a change of heart in Soviet foreign policy because they like you and admire you as a person is pure folly. Um, you're not going to warm Stalin's heart over a game of golf, essentially. Hmm. And so I think FDR, he was a, a fantastic politician and was such a great leader throughout the depression and the war. But by this time, I do think that he was naive in his view of the Soviet Union and Stalin's willingness to cooperate. And Chip Boland, who was also at the conference, who would go on to also be a leader during the Cold War, was there in the capacity of Roosevelt's translator and interpreter, and really not used for the Soviet expertise that he had at the time, which could have been very useful. And he's quite critical of FDR's approach to foreign policy and dealing with the Soviets, which he feels is very naive at this time. One of the things we hear today when people debate politics and who America's allies are and 
whether we should be interacting in a certain way with a country like North Korea or, I don't know, like Russia. Um, one of the things we hear is that the relationships of convenience are sometimes worth dealing with someone who you don't share morality with, who you disagree with. Um, and people often point to Stalin. Did our interactions with Stalin prove to be effective in the long run? In other words, it was giving up a little bit of um, our morality or, or at least going uh, talking with someone who was sort of against American principle, at least on paper. Um, did that wind up working out? Well, I think it's, you know, kind of one of these, you know, you have to keep your friends close and your enemies closer, but also the, the expediency, the fire had to be put out immediately. Hitler had to be defeated. The Nazis had to be defeated before anything else. And as uncomfortable as it was, you know, to have this alliance with the Soviets as much as early on the, the various leaders in Britain and the United States try to talk themselves into the idea that, oh, it's just like doing business with anyone else. Sometimes you have to do business with people you don't like, but we can all uh, get along because we have the same objective. Um, and this is a view that Avril Harriman had early in the war. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things is, you know, was it constructive in the long run? I mean, if it was just literally about winning the war, yes, of course it was, would have been so much harder, you know, if not impossible without the Soviets. Um, but did it lead to real complications immediately after the fact? Yes, of course. But I think one of the things people kind of look at Yalta and they see it sometimes as being similar to Munich, kind of this idea that the West sold out to the Soviet Union. For there to have been a different result in areas like Poland and Polish sovereignty and not having this iron curtain descend across Eastern Europe, there would have had to have been significant changes made in strategy and preparation two, three, and four years earlier, opening a second front in the West so that the Soviet Union didn't have such firm control of Eastern Europe rearming in Britain and the United States much earlier so that that uh, invasion of Normandy would have been possible earlier. And so it's kind of this counterfactual, counterfactual spiral, which is uh, very unsatisfying to fall down. <laughs> but irresistible. Um, <laughs> what happens at the conference, right? We've been teeing this up here. So how do the negotiations go? Um, you don't have to go minute by minute here, but, but um, how, how do the negotiations go? And then add in there what roles the daughters are playing during this actual tug of war? Yeah, the, the negotiations are frustrating to say the least. Uh, they, the leaders emerge from the conference saying this has been a great victory. They're kind of broadcasting this uh, positive hope for the continued alliance with Stalin going forward, but this is really not the reality. Germany and kind of German reorganizations is something that they will continue to talk about and this continues uh, later at the Potsdam conference. The really frustrating element for Churchill, and it's really so tragic, is that there's very little that he can do at the end of this conference to enforce the promises that Stalin has made in Poland. And as we know, Poland you know, would spend the next 50 years in, in, you know, under oppressed uh, circumstances uh, by you know, communist leadership. And so they, they did not end up with the democratically elected government that they had been promised. And uh, in the Pacific, you know, the Soviets do ultimately join the war in the Pacific, but you know, only <laughs> just they're in the war for three days. We have the atomic bomb at that point, controversial, of course, but so Stalin ends up making off with these territorial concessions for very little contribution. And then, you know, the UN is, a, I, I would say, a great success that has come out of the conference. Um, 
Roosevelt's objective was to secure peace in Europe for 50 years, and we have you know, far surpassed that. And so in the conference, they're, they're just kind of bludgeoning each other day after day after day over the course of this week, over the eight plenary sessions that they have. And for the daughters, as I mentioned, they're not in the conference themselves, like in the, the negotiations, but they are seeing the results of it when their fathers come out at the end of the day and kind of staying up late into the night to help them reconcile their feelings and emotions and frustrations to channel their thoughts into the most productive line of argument when they go back in the next day. And, and you say that three women had never before in history been so close to the seats of power. That's extraordinary. Yes. I mean, not to say that women have not been on the forefront of history, you know, you have had queens, um, Catherine the Great, um, and then even during World War II, um, Chiang Kai-shek's wife, uh, she was also very involved. And I think that even though women didn't have a seat at the conference table, per se, in this meeting, it's not to say that they were devoid of power. And it's just kind of, you have to think of the kind of power and influence they had in it from a different perspective than we would think of right now. So there's a really famous photograph of the three leaders uh, in the Garden of Lavadia Palace with their military leaders standing behind them. This is one of the most iconic images of the three of them uh, from the war. But there's also another picture that's taken from a slightly different angle of the same scene. And you can see the daughters off to the side. And it's a, a photograph that's very rarely shown. And this is uh, in the book. And so it's just, it's kind of, I think, a, a metaphor for that frame shift of perspective of the kinds of power and influence women have had throughout history, but in different ways than the, we would think of it today. Are they interacting throughout the three of them? Yeah. Yes, they Explain are. Explain that, yeah. Um, so the three daughters, they spend a lot of time together while their fathers are in the conference sessions. And one of the things that they have an opportunity to do is to go out into the local community and see the people and meet the people whose lives are being directly impacted by the conversations happening within the walls of Lavadia Palace. They go to Sevastopol, which has been utterly destroyed by the war. This is a city that has just undergone, undergone destruction so many times. It's kind of the Crimea, so the, the crossroads of sparring empires. Um, you think of the Crimean War and the charge of the Light Brigade, and that's, this is where this is happening. And so they can see the, the regular people who have just lost everything, but also the hope that they continue to have for a better future. And so I think in a sense, the daughters kind of personify the future for their fathers in a, a much more immediate way. It's not just this abstract, we have to secure peace for the benefit of our, our, our children and our better our future generations, but literally it's like for their own children, they have to secure a better world. And through their daughters, they can also have this lens into the lives of the regular people uh, who they can't see while they're hashing out the future. Uh, do you think we've said enough about who gets what in here? I mean, in other words, which what countries come away with, with what? Do you wanna just set the, a real quick, you know, kind of a baseline here of what they all walk away with? Um, so they, they walk away with um, some wins for each of them and some losses for each of them. Um, Roosevelt walks away with this commitment from the Soviets that they are going to join the war in the Pacific, although that really ends up being quite meaningless in the end, but also their agreement to participate in the United Nations. For him, this, this kind of surpasses and um, rises above any of the more regional conflicts that Churchill's very concerned about, like Poland. Um, Churchill, one of his objectives was making sure that um, the administration of Germany was going to be, you know, you know, they were going to remain one country, but they were going to be administered by the Allies. And so this is something that he considers a victory. And 
even though he ha knows that he doesn't have much chance that, that Stalin's going to keep his word in Poland. And Stalin really walks away with most of things that he wants. He has made you know, these concessions to Churchill supposedly on things like, you know, I'd prefer Germany to be broken up, but you know, it's okay, they can remain one country. Um, because he walks away with a friendly government that he knows he can have in Poland, regardless of what he said to Churchill and Roosevelt, and also um, territory in the Pacific that he's long had his eye on for very little work. <laughs> uh, how did the daughters say goodbye to one another? So the daughters, um, as I mentioned, their relationships really kind of ebb and flow with that, of mirroring that of their fathers. And so by the end of the conference, I mean, they're not walking away as best friends. They're not going to have this great relationship going forward. Sarah Churchill and Kathleen Harriman were already very good friends before Yalta because the Churchill and Harriman families were very good friends while the Harrimans were living in London between 1941 and 1943. Um, but neither of the two daughters had met Anna Roosevelt prior to this. And Anna, I'd say, is the one who's kind of least comfortable in this environment. She is the oldest and she is the president's daughter, but she doesn't have the kind of experience in these um, diplomatic settings that the other two daughters do. And so she is somewhat insecure. And I think she sees Kathleen Harriman as um, a, a kind of a, a person who is invading her turf in a sense. You know, she's the president's daughter. People should defer to her. Um, but because Kathleen has lived in London and Moscow and she is American, everybody there already knows her and they kind of defer to her naturally. Kathleen's completely oblivious to the sense that Anna doesn't really like her. Um, but that's kind of, unfortunately, <laughs> not because Kathleen's done anything wrong, but that's just kind of Anna's perception. And so they, they leave friendly, but not, you know, the weight of the world that their fathers are carrying affects them too, and that affects their own relationships among the three of them. And so Sarah, uh, she leaves the conference and she really sees the trepidation and concern her father has for the post-war world. And so she, she wants to be there to protect him from this. And her writing about the conference, I'd say it really reflects almost like she's the conscience of the conference. And you can see the writing of the wall through her letters at this time, which are really beautiful. And I'll leave it to the readers to, to, to explore that. Um, but I think through her, you can really hear the voice of what's to come. Um, what impact, this is an FDR-centric question, what impact does FDR's, for the lack of a better term, um, failed marriage have on his relationship with Anna? Why is he able to feel close to her, but not Eleanor? So Anna, she, to me, is in, in the most difficult position of the three daughters and really faces a lot of tragedy. Um, she is carrying the secret of her father's health. Uh, again, this is something that Eleanor really can't quite come to terms with or make herself see. And it, you think of Franklin and Eleanor of having had this great working relationship, but at this, this point, Eleanor's really not that involved with the wartime elements. She takes on much more of the, the domestic policy. She kind of goes and is... Um, FDR's eyes and ears, and she has trips abroad to go meet with servicemen, things like that. But they aren't as much of a united front as you would think of at this time. And so a lot of that kind of day-to-day -day, uh, anxiety, the White House falls on Anna, but also Anna's keeping another secret. And this is that the affair that her father had with Lucy Mercer when she was a little girl really never went away. And she knows that her mother was devastated by this. And at this time, it's, you know, we think it's more probably was more of an emotional affair that it was just kind of like this, this long-term friendship that they had. 
And so Anna knows her father is dying and that this uh, friendship and uh, you know, attachment he has to Lucy is one of the few things that gives him a little bit of peace and happiness in the midst of the concerns of the war. And so almost to, you know, to save her father as this you know, overture to a, a, a broader objective of keeping him alive to win the war, she agrees to keep the secret and not tell her mother. And so she, she's kind of between her parents in a very unfair and uncomfortable position. I'll say, I'll say, yeah, that, that, that's like on steroids there. Um, what becomes of the daughters of Yalta? Uh, you say that Sarah Churchill could have become a politician in another time. I, yeah, I do believe that if Sarah had been born 10 years later, she could have succeeded her father in politics. Mm-hmm. She had a very astute grasp of the political world, the feelings of the British people because of her work at, in, as a WAF. She was meeting a different segment of the population than her father was, and she could really sense the shifting uh, sentiment in Britain towards the end of the war as people are exhausted, they've lost so much, and all they want is a a little more support. And so she has these astute reflections on politics, and she, as I mentioned, is an actress, and so she's great in front of people, and she does have such beautiful command of language like her father. And so I, I don't think that... I, she wouldn't have thought at that time. And again, this is kind of, we have to remember our, our modern perspective and how you know we wish Sarah could have had a chance to do that. But Sarah herself, sadly, wouldn't have realized that maybe that was something she could have pursued. It was um, a, a, a big enough kind of revolt against society that she became an actress and you know, not mm-hmm. just a debutante who got married and had a family. And so she had so many gifts and I'm really thrilled to allow her a chance to speak for herself and for her gifts to be appreciated um, in this, this small slice of her experience during the war. What about Kathleen? Yeah, so Kathleen uh, does briefly return to her work as a reporter for Newsweek, um, but she does get married uh, shortly after the war, and she was, it was quite late for a woman to, of her, um, her class to get married at the time, um, but she had had this grand adventure and really kind of saw it as a chapter in her life. And then when she got married and had a family, had had another chapter in her life that was in many ways equally satisfying. Um, she, as I mentioned, was a fantastic athlete, a remarkable skier and equestrian. And so this is a love that she shared with her children. And it's been so wonderful getting to know her family and her children who have these wonderful memories of their mother. But she really never spoke about her experience during the war. Like many members of the greatest generation, she didn't think what she did was any more important than anyone else. And they barely knew about her experience in London and Russia aside from her occasionally saying goodnight to them in Russian, she really kind of didn't let on too much about it. Oftentimes the experiences of a daughter, um, just from my own reading of, of hundreds of biographies and history books, the experiences of a daughter are often used as sort of color for historians, purely as bridges to make the men that, that these historians are writing about seem more relatable. So why do their roles need to be recast in how we understand and study history? Yeah, so they, as you mentioned, you know, these daughters, on the rare occasion they have been mentioned in more of the geopolitical histories of Yalta, it really is kind of lending this background color. You, you know, they're not even in the Wikipedia entry. When you go to Wikipedia and search their names, they're not even in there. Right. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that when I was looking at the Wikipedia entry. And actually, uh, a friend of mine sent me this recently. Kathleen Harriman did not have a Wikipedia page prior to this book being published. Wow, and now good, she's that's, that's something. For her, so thank you. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, part of it's we didn't have the sources necessary to tell their story previously. Um, I was one of the first people to be able to go through Sarah Churchill's papers comprehensively when the family opened them to outside researchers. And that was through her papers that I found this story. And then Kathleen Harriman only died in 2011. And when she died, her sons just found this, this box of letters to her sister sitting in a closet in her apartment in New York. And so we didn't have as much material to robustly tell their story. But I think more than anything, it's not just about making history more relatable or giving people kind of like a softer, more colorful touch to understand this history. But in all of our lives, we have someone who's really important to us, who plays an unsung role, but one, a person who's indispensable, that person that we turn to in moments of struggle and crisis and when we need a second opinion and to know what we're doing is right. For some people, it could be you know, your mother, your brother, you know, your friend, a grandparent, but there, all of us have that person. And that person is just as important to the development of history and to you know, the, the outcomes and the past that we pursue as you know, is some named person office holder. Um, and so it's you know, also a chance to give that unsung hero in all of our lives an opportunity to speak for themselves and to be appreciated because often what they're doing is unseen and the things that they do so well because they do it so well, we don't know that they're there. And so it's a chance for all of us to reflect also on who is that per person who is so important to us. And that person is so much more than background color in our lives. And that's what these daughters were for their fathers. I love that answer. Maybe one of the best I've had in the 22 episodes that we've taped so far. That, that, that is so great and so true. Um, and I'm so glad you're shedding light on, on the formation of, of not just people of history, but, but of everybody. Um, I don't know. Are, are there daughters today who are following in the mold of the daughters of Yalta? Have we identified those people yet? <laughs> well, I think uh, I, I get a lot of questions about Ivanka Trump, of course and certain parallels between the activity that she has had in her father's administration compared to other first children and the appropriate role for first children and especially adult first children isn't something we've really had to think about too much in recent years because the most recent first children have been young children. And so now you have a first daughter who's very active in policy, even though she really doesn't have the experience in this world. Um, and so on the one hand, it's like, you know, great that this father values his daughter, but on the other hand, it is also concerning because, you know, these daughters at Yalta didn't have the security clearance to be part of the, the conference negotiations and they know that and they respect that. And just being related to the president isn't a sufficient qualification for those types of interactions. And so it's, you know, I think we should have a conversation, especially since family has been such an important part of this election cycle in a variety of different capacities. What is the appropriate role for the first family? Um, in a sense, when you elect someone, it's, it's like when you marry someone, you marry their family. When you elect someone, you kind of elect their family too. And there is a clear role for a first spouse, but what about first children? If they are highly experienced in policy, then maybe that's expertise that you hope to channel in a non-nepotistic way, but otherwise, you know, like what, what is the right role? And I think that that's a conversation that we should have nationally. So where did you get this idea from? Brilliant. <laughs> where did you find, where, where, what, what went off and you said, that's a story that has to be told? Um, so I had studied history as an undergraduate at Harvard and then a grad student at Cambridge and spent a lot of time researching uh, Winston Churchill, somewhat coincidentally. 
Um, and then when I graduated from Cambridge, I did what many uh, recent grads think that they should do, kind of the smart thing, and went to work in finance in New York. And <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I will say, as someone who didn't go to work in finance in New York, that is the smart thing to do, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but very coincidentally, in the lobby of my office was a bookstore called Chartwell Booksellers, which was a bookstore that specialized in um, works by and about Winston Churchill, kind of one of these things that can only exist in Manhattan. And so I couldn't believe my luck. And I found myself kind of sneaking down to the bookstore more often when I say I was going to get a coffee, I'd actually go to the store. And I uh, got to know the owner pretty well. And through him, I met the International Churchill Society and the Churchill family. And the family was opening Sarah's papers to outside researchers for the first time. They um, were hoping a young historian could uh, write an article about them for their magazine. And they asked me. So I was, I was like, yes, of course, I'd love to, which meant a chance to go back to Cambridge and kind of reacquaint myself with history. And I just remember kind of going back to you know this unsung person in your life who is you know there for you at every step. I had been in the office kind of on a Saturday. And it was shortly after, you know, I had one of my first interactions, you know, with the, the Churchill Society and my mom was like, oh, like, that's so interesting. You never know where this could go. Maybe this is a completely different path for you. And I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe. And uh, sure enough, and through the course of writing this article, first about Sarah, um, and then I got to learn about the other two daughters. And in all the time I had spent studying history and Yalta in school, I never knew that these women were there. And it was almost like, you know, just stumbling upon a, a gold mine kind of in the archives and having this completely different perspective in an instant. And how long did the book take to write once you have this idea? Uh, about three years, um, about a year and a half of research and then a year and a half to finish the manuscript. I, for the last year of it, I was also a first year law student at Harvard Law. And uh, so I had uh, wrote kind of drafts two and three during my first year of law school. Uh, not a lot of sleep last year. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I'll say. Uh, I'd rather have a book and no sleep than a lot of sleep and no book. So yeah, yeah, there you go, there you go. Well, you've got your book. Uh, you're a law student. Um, the question is, uh, what's next? Are you? And you don't have to lay out, you know, your whole life plan here. But are you, are you going to give up the writing to be a lawyer, or um, do you? Did you find something that you want to keep on doing? Definitely not going to give up the writing. I consider myself first and foremost a historian and a writer, and there's so many wonderful stories that I want to continue to tell and write about. One of the frustrating things with COVID is that we have all this time, but I can't get into any archives to see the primary source documents for what I you know, think I would like to work on next. And so until then, you know, I, I want to make sure that I, I do my job properly in the archives before I you know, say my thesis is correct. But uh, I think law and history are two fields that can really go hand in hand. History can inform you know, the way that we think about complex issues in the present, and so many of which have strong legal implications, and law is all about history and precedent. So I hope I can bring the two fields together to uh, give a clearer understanding of how we think about critical issues in our own time and how we can move forward in a more positive direction. Catherine Grace Katz, the author of The Daughters of Yalta, The Churchills, Roosevelt's, and Harriman's A Story of Love and War, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Certainly check out that book and her Twitter profile, which is at Catherine underscore Katz, K-A-T-Z. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.